Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. I'm your host, Talia Murdoch, and would like to begin by acknowledging that we are fortunate to be able to gather on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people. Today, I'm going to be starting with a multiple episode series on agricultural economics, beginning with corn. Why corn? Number one, corn is delicious. And number two, I wanted to start with commodity crops in this ag series, as there is a lot of data available, and I find the global food market particularly interesting as it has a lot of big moving parts. In my personal life, I try to buy local food as much as possible, especially when it comes to fresh produce. I'm obviously not against trade as a whole and think it is great for countries to specialise in what they're good at producing, but when it comes to food, I don't know, I just feel a bit strange about it. So this series is also going to be a bit of me exploring this. First, a quick definition of what a commodity crop is. A commodity crop is any crop that is traded, non-perishable, storable, transportable, and it is homogenous, meaning that one corn kernel from the US is the same as one from Brazil. In 2017, over 41 billion bushels of corn was produced worldwide. A bushel is equal to about 35 litres of a dry product, so we're measuring volume and not weight. To make it easier though, I found a conversion and standard weight to see a bushel of corn equal to about 25.4 kilograms, which is around 141 cobs on average. I thought bushels was a weird measurement at first, but I guess it makes sense for historical reasons. It is originally a US measurement, and they are the largest producers and exporters of corn, followed by China, who are also massive producers, but don't even come close to the US. In 2017, the US alone produced the equivalent of 371 billion metric tons of corn, while China produced 215 billion. The production of this crop has grown significantly in the last 60 years. In 1950, the US produced only about 68.5 billion metric tons, showing an increase of just over 440%. Before this exponential growth, the industry was very stable and moved with seasons and economic cycles from 1960 to the 1950s. Now, interestingly, the large increase in production has also been achieved with about the same amount of acreage due to technical advances in farming. Don't get me wrong, the acreage has increased, just not as much as the amount of corn that's actually being produced. But in saying that, corn also uses more land than any other crop in the US, spanning more than 97 million acres, roughly the size of California state. I'm not going to list out how much corn every country grows, but I will link some good websites to find this data on cavegoblins.com for you to have a look at. The World Bank is always a great resource if you're looking for any stats. So what is corn even used for if we grow so much of it? It is an incredibly productive and versatile crop, and makes some food like corn flour, cornmeal grits, and just regular old corn. It is also more commonly used to make animal feed and ethanol to be used in biofuels, alongside high fructose corn syrup. So let's get into the corn system in America rather than the crop itself. The fact that we grow so much corn is not in itself a problem. The fact that it isn't primarily produced to feed people is the problem. For every acre of corn crop, a farmer will produce about 140 to 160 bushels, roughly 500,000 cobs. In the US, the main producer of corn, 40% of this is used to make ethanol, 36% for animal feed, and most of the remainder is exported. When it comes to food for human consumption, what is left behind is majorly used to produce high fructose corn syrup and incredibly unhealthy and addictive sugar, that has so many negative externalities attached, like contributing to obesity and diabetes, which puts pressure on both public and private health systems. 
In 2013, the average Iowa cornfield, Iowa is famous for its corn, had the capacity to provide enough corn to sustain 14 people for a year if all you ate was corn, equal to 15 million calories. But they only delivered 3 million calories in food, so five times less than it could potentially feed. This is lower than the average delivery of food from calories for corn farmers in underdeveloped countries like Bangladesh and Vietnam, so it doesn't really measure up. As a system, corn production also uses a large amount of natural resources. Compared to other crops, it uses heaps of water, withdrawn from underground aquifers, about 5.6 cubic miles per year. If you want to learn more about why this is an issue, you can listen to parts 1 and 2 of Pricing Water of this podcast. Further, the Ogallala Aquifer in the Midwest America, where most corn is grown, is being depleted at a rate such that if this continues, there is only about 20 years of supply left within it. And I guarantee that we cannot refill an aquifer as quickly as we empty it. Growing demand for ethanol to create biofuels also saw an increase in acreage by 13 million between 2006 and 2011. This replaced 2.9 million acres of wheat, 1.7 million acres of oats, and 1 million acres of sorghum, among other foods. This leaves us with a less diverse agricultural system, heavily dependent on one crop. When compared to the benefits it returns to the American people, this isn't great. A big reason the benefits of growing so much corn for so little food is linked in with the vast amount of subsidies this industry receives from government every year. And this is not exclusive to the U.S., Farming subsidies exist across the world, and often for good reason. But when it comes to corn, given that over 70% of the crop is not used for feeding people, the subsidy is not really for the benefit of the average person, rather big companies. This crop receives more subsidies from the US government than any other crop. Such subsidies are made in the form of direct payments, crop insurance payments, and mandates to produce ethanol. Between 1995 and 2010, subsidies for corn, excluding ethanol mandates, equaled $90 billion. In 2012, crop insurance programs paid out about $20 billion alone, with the combined total being over $30 billion, and this is still all in the US. Worldwide, in 2012, the most recent year with data, ag subsidies totaled an estimated $486 billion in the top 21 food-producing countries in the world. These countries, the members of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, and seven other countries, Brazil, China, Indonesia, Kazakhstan, Russia, South Africa, and Ukraine, are responsible for almost 80% of global agriculture value added in the world, the lion's share of production, of course, being in the US. Comparatively, Asia spends more than the rest of the world combined. China pays farmers an unparalleled $165 billion each year, which is way too high. Significant subsidies are also provided by Japan, $65 billion, Indonesia at $28 billion, and South Korea at $20 billion. The EU combined spent over $106 billion on agricultural subsidies in total. United States spending is just over $30 billion, and Canada and Mexico spend $7.5 billion and $7 billion respectively. Now, between 2001 and 2004, OECD subsidies increased from $216 billion to $280 billion, which is considered rapid growth. There's a lot going on in this industry in the way of government subsidies, and I'll explain a little bit more about why it's not necessarily a good thing in a moment. Looking back at just the US now, by far the largest way subsidies are paid to farmers is through insurance. 
with the US Department of Agriculture paying about 62% of all premiums. For the past three years, this has equaled roughly eight out of $20 billion, up $3 billion from the early 2000s. The government subsidizes both premiums and the administration costs of 16 private insurance companies. That's $1.5 billion per year. Are you surprised that a small number of wealthy companies are benefiting? These insurance companies receive both direct subsidies and inflated profits from the high premiums they charge. I honestly wonder how many people in Congress have a financial stake in the ag insurance business. There are also no income limits on ag insurance subsidies, so millionaires and billionaires can receive them. Now, 80% of policy protects revenue shortfall, 20% protects yield shortfall, so regardless of the quality of harvest, the farms are protected. Now, please don't think I am against protecting farmers, not at all, but protect the ones who grow food, not destructive fuels. I also do not for a second blame the farmers for what has happened within this industry. It is the responsibility of policymakers and government at large who mandate corn production for ethanol, among other things. I'm not against corn or its growers. I'm talking about the system as a whole. So moving on, what this type of subsidy is doing really is encouraging a market to operate inefficiently. When there is a bad crop, people might complain that they weren't able to grow much, but the price is driven up, so they still win, plus they get their subsidies. When there is a great harvest, supply is abundant, so prices are lower, but they still get their subsidies. US farmers who grow using industrial methods depend on about $20 billion every year, with the lion's share going to corn, soy, wheat, and rice. So this is a pretty clear signal that modern agriculture practices are unsustainable, as prices and crop yields vary so much. So while you, the individual consumer, might seemingly pay a lot less for corn at a grocery store than, say, organic corn at a market, you are still paying more through your taxes. On top of this, other externalities attached to industrial ag like nitrogen and other chemical runoff, soil erosion and degradation, nutrient loss, overconsumption of water, carbon emissions released, etc., this is not unique to the US and happens in almost every place that commodity crops are grown. So if, if you consider that the fact that such massive subsidies are paid every year, if more sustainable practices were undertaken as industry standard, then the true price of producing food would be paid at the gate and at the store, meaning that the subsidies would not be needed. These savings could be used in a number of ways to lower the cost of living for average consumers via lower taxes, new housing developments to lower rents, better education, it can be revenue neutral. Plus, when you consider the reduction in negative externalities, the overall cost to society is lower. When we're talking about food and land, it is also really important that we talk about the biggest challenge of all, which is, of course, climate change. Let me assure you, corn production is not immune. First, let's look at biofuels themselves as an alternative to petroleum. The International Institute for Sustainable Development estimates that carbon dioxide and climate benefits from replacing petroleum fuels with biofuels end up being zero. They state that it would be far more efficient to increase standards on all cars and light trucks to run at a minimum of 40 miles per gallon. So make the vehicle require less fuel as opposed to changing the type of fuel it uses. The push to grow corn to produce ethanol to create cleaner fuels is not valid. Climate science aside, Growing food to produce fuel is a moral issue and, in my opinion, shouldn't happen. The grain required to fill a 25-gallon or 95-litre tank could feed a person for a year. 
On top of this, biofuels also push up the price of foods, which can leave many people unable to feed their families. For more on this, listen to episode 5 of this podcast on trade and learn what happened to Mexico when they signed on to the NAFTA. I meant to be talking about climate change here anyway. Biofuels definitely raise complex issues. A recent study out of the National Academy of Sciences of the US has shown that extreme heat has negative impacts on the flowering of crops and increases their water usage. This is a major risk for world food security. With two degrees of warming, you know, the amount that was agreed to be reasonable warming in the Paris Agreement, corn yields would decline by 20 to 40%. That is a lot. With four degrees, the decline would be 40 to 60% of yields. Knowing that only a handful of countries grow the bulk of the world's corn, we can assess the probability of these falling corn yields. Today, the probability that the four big producers have a simultaneous failure is zero. When we factor in two degrees of global warming, this becomes 7%. When we factor in four degrees of global warming, which is not out of the question by the end of the century, the probability of a 40 to 60% reduction becomes 86%. This is highly alarming, but it doesn't mean that farmers won't be able to adapt. We are already seeing wheat crops move further, further north in the US, for example. The biggest impacts, as always, however, will be on poor urban consumers and farmers in the developing world. By 2050, it is estimated that countries across Africa who have historically been net exporters of grain will become net importers of grain as they are phased out by low global prices and climate change impacts. Okay, so I now think it is a good time to talk about GMOs as it has some links to climate change. Possibly one of the biggest controversies around corn and other commodity crops is genetic modification. Now, in all honesty, I don't have a firm position on GMOs myself. I think it is impressive that a plant can be scientifically modified to resist things that would otherwise damage or kill it, like some pesticides, drought, anything like that. And I do get that it is traditionally seen as an efficient way to grow crops. I don't know the ins and outs of the issues yet. There are serious issues with uniformity, though, on the whole, as it is just plain bad for soil quality, which in turn is bad for plants and the broader ecosystem. What I do have more strong feelings about, however, is Monsanto and the monopoly they hold over seeds. We're sold this idea that GMOs are the solution to world hunger and nutrition problems, which may be true to some degree. But when this market is so heavily dominated by one company, the reason behind genetic modification really boils down to one thing, profits. This is a problem. I'm not really talking about the safety of Monsanto corn. Studies that have shown organ failure in rats who were fed the product have largely been discredited and disproven, so I won't be getting into that. It's more about the food system as a whole, which as you know by now is the main topic of this episode. So overall, 10 companies control 75% of genetically modified seeds, with Monsanto making up 26% of the market. This is incredibly significant. They own over a quarter of it, particularly when the second largest controller, DuPont Pioneer, someone I had never heard of before doing this research, only controls just 18%. Still big, but not close to 26% of a huge market. The way that these companies get control is via patents and intellectual property rights. They will have teams of scientists who undertake research and development to create something that does not exist in nature, which can then receive a patent, restricting anyone else from working with the modified organism. Not necessarily the worst thing ever, Intellectual property rights are important. In this instance, 
What we end up losing is biodiversity, which is increasingly evident to be the most sustainable way to farm. We lose innovation, we lose farmers, the growers of food lose control of their practice. If you're a farmer and you buy seed from Monsanto, you aren't allowed to keep any seed for your next crop. You have to buy it again or face a lawsuit from a very rich, very powerful company. Monsanto currently owns about 1,676 seed, plant and other applicable patents. On the other hand though, patents do end, upon which farmers and researchers can use the seeds as they please. There is still an issue though with bottlenecking a process for years and years at a time and just reducing innovation and biodiversity that other people might be able to get if they had access to these seeds. On the whole, 40% of the world's GM crops are grown in the US and Monsanto controls 80% of the GMO corn market in the US. In 2013 worldwide, 282 million acres were planted in Monsanto's GM crops, up from only 3 million in 1996. This is a 93% increase in less than 20 years. So what about corn? Roughly 90% of all corn planted is from genetically modified seed. So one company pretty much owns all of this crop, which is not sustainable. Something else which shows just how, just how not right this is, is the fact that in recent years, 27% of Monsanto profits came from Roundup sales. Now Roundup is a weed killer made from the chemical glyphosate. Monsanto seeds are bred to be resistant to glyphosate. I'm sure you can do the math. So it is definitely something to consider when analysing the agriculture system and the corn system. I won't get too much into it because GMOs will be getting its own episode of part of this ag series and I don't want to overload right now, but it is important that I mention it as it is a key element of the commodity crop industry. And as you can see, 90% of all corn is GMO. A monopoly on food? It just isn't efficient. I think I'm going to leave it there for this episode. When I next revisit corn, I will discuss how some farms are undertaking sustainable practices that could and should become the norm. This will apply broadly to all of the crops I look at in this ag series, not just corn, so I've left it out of this one. As always, thank you so much for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter at Every Economics, or find the whole network at Cave Goblins across all social media platforms. Please rate and review on iTunes as this is the easiest way to support the show. And don't forget to set it to auto-download so your weekly fix is not dependent on the internet. For more podcasts, you can check out our other shows, Comedy Zeitgeist, DMs of Vancouver, and Podcast vs. Podcast, all on the Cave Goblin Network. We have much more coming for you next year, so follow us on Twitter and check out our website for updates. Thank you again. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm Talia Murdoch, and this has been Everything Economics. Hey, my name is Eric. I'm Piers. And this is Podcast vs. Podcast. You're listening to us here on the Cave Goblin Network. We take turns pitching podcasts to each other. We're trying to find a good podcast to do because we don't have any ideas. So turn off whatever show you're listening to. Turn on our show. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.